Phoebe. I'm Clancy. And I'm Damien. You might be asking, what do two Aussies and a POM have in common? Quite a lot, actually. For starters, Her Majesty has her face on all our currencies. Even the coins. There's a great Union Jack floating around some flags as well. And we speak the same language, sort of. Somehow. Allegedly. Have we love winding each other up? What are we doing here then? Winding you up. But anyway, on this show we discuss current Australian politics. We take a look at past events. While on a mission to ensure the Governor General stays in their job. What? I didn't sign up for this. What? It's in the show's name, Phoebe. Welcome to Let's Save the Governor General. No, I don't want to. Kick him out. What about her? Or her. No, let's <laughs> just not have a governor general. Let's have a republic. With who is, pre- <laughs> with who is president? Not ScoMo. President ScoMo. President ScoMo. No, President Julia Gillard. President Craig Kelly. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Let's Save the Governor General. Huge applause. There's a hand applause. But... No need for canned applause for my two regular co-hosts, Phoebe and um, Some made changes in their life in the last few weeks, but we'll get to that soon. Um, speaking of somebody who hasn't moved, Clancy. How no, are you? I haven't moved anywhere. I'm still no, where, I'm where, where you are is pretty good, I, I hear. Yeah, apart from the saga of the driveway, it's pretty good. The saga of the driveway, yes, that's because uh, you, you just can't seem to get your driveway going. Well, I can't seem to get down it. That's... <laughs> Oh, you poor duck. And speaking of poor ducks... It's good Phoebe, to be on this. I don't see a hotbox. Where's the hotbox? The, the hotbox is in England, and I am somewhere else in a different part of the globe, shall we say. Are you? Are you? Do you happen to be in a former British colony? Yes. Well, no, actually. But, you know, that's debatable. But that's about as much information as I'm prepared to give away to our viewers. More um, information how- will be drip-fed through Easter eggs. As the I know, goes exactly. All, all, all we can say is that she's defected. She she has. As long as I'm not defective. So you've moved either closer to Australia or further away from Australia. I, I don't That's know very true. But before we begin, did you see the Not My King protests in Scotland? Well, actually, oh. that before we start there, King Charles got coronated a second time. He did. For some weird reason. What's the reason, Phoebes? That... Because the kingdoms of England and Scotland are two distinct kingdoms still. Uh... So here's the thing. When they sliced Charles I's head off, the kingdom of Scotland crowned Charles II before uh, he then ran away to France. As you do, yeah. So he was king of Scotland for the period that the English Commonwealth was in force during the interregnum. The interregnum being the period that where England was a republic thanks to Ollie Cromwell. That guy. So anyway, so last during the last couple of weeks, I think it was either last week or the week before, King Charles had a small, a uh, much smaller coronation ceremony in Scotland. He most certainly did. He was presented and with the crown jewels. He had because when he goes into Scotland, he is no longer an Anglican. He's a member of the Church of Scotland instead. So he becomes Presbyterian. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> He's Anglican in England, in Scotland. He's he's a bloody two-timer, that guy. In more ways than one. But isn't it weird that the Stone of Scone is kept in Scotland that makes him the king of England anyway? Well, that is another thing that comes from King James I, who was he took the Stone of Scone down to England when he was coronated after he was invited to become the king of England after the death of 
Elizabeth I in 1583 so that he could say that there was legitimacy when he uh, was okay. unifying the crowns of England and Scotland. So he was already the King of Scotland when he became... He the was. King. He was James VI of Scotland and then he came down after being invited by the Parliament of England when they looked at family share and went, uh, we don't want that family to become uh, okay. monarchs. Uh, you'll do. <laughs> yeah, yeah you'll, you'll do. I think that's... Uh... But anyway, ladies, thank you for joining me for this uh, special uh, dedicated episode to <clears throat> in the last week, the Robo Debt Royal Commission. And it's literally called the Robo Debt Royal Commission. <laughs> it's just a bit of a weird Royal Commission into the Robo Debt Scheme is the uh, that has come out uh, with some pretty scathing findings. Uh, and in that, uh, I'm going to ask the question. Has ScoMo's halo fallen off completely? And should he toddle off into the sunset never to be mentioned again? So he had a halo to begin with? I think, I think he did. A very minor one, had, but I think he He had some form of he steered Australia through COVID. Yes. That's what oh, he had. No, he didn't. He let other but people do the work. Yes, but we didn't know that until we realised he had scooped up all those ministries. And he was yes. going, look, look, my ministries now. Now you do that, you do that, you do that, you do that, you do that. What was actually anyway, happening? Phoebe, you had a few the... choice things you wanted to say. So, yeah, Scott Morrison, 30th Prime Minister of Australia, from mm -hmm. August 2018 to May 2022, was the man that nobody expected to actually become Prime Minister when Malcolm Turnbull lost the leadership spill. Yes. in that fateful night in 2018. Everyone thought it would be the bald man that's currently engaged in the culture war against the voice, that is, Peter Dutton. But out of nowhere came a man named Scott. And he amazingly managed to win the 2019 federal elections. But that was his high point, because along came covid and along came the parliamentary sexual misconduct allegations. Because well, along they came the bushfires as well. Don't forget the bushfires. Those bushfires. Oh, yes, really... the bushfires came along as well. And this is the man who gave us AUKUS. And we all know what I think on that front. But the member for Cook, as he is now known, has had numbers of scandals follow him since he has left office. Robo-debt is just one. The other major one being the hoarding of ministerial offices during COVID and how to piss the French off. Scott Morrison was an interesting character when he was Minister for Social Services and when he was also Minister for Immigration and Border Protection under Anthony John Abbott, because he was the man responsible for Operation Sovereign Borders. Wasn't that a great time in Australian politics? We give you the man who steered Australia through COVID, Scott. Morrison. Scotty. Scotty from marketing. We'll, we'll get to Scotty uh, himself <clears throat> in a sec, but let's just go through the okay. Let's just go through the report. Um, now it's funny. It that is very scathing of Scott John Morrison. It is very very scathing of him. It is. I haven't actually gotten to that part because I'm still going through the. Uh, so the text of the Royal Commission has come out, and it's about a thousand a thousand something pages long. So it's a bit of a you know it's, it's a good bedtime read. It's a very weighty document. It is a very weighty document. But in short, so RoboDebt was a, a nickname given to the idea that computers were doing the work of averaging income for welfare recipients 
in order to aggregate whether there was a debt that needed to be paid back. So that's where the robo in robo debt came from, robot and, and debt. It was a, port, a portmanteau, as you would. And it did actually kind of start with uh, Tony Abbott, because according to the report, now just to briefly read from the report, in September 2013, the Liberal National Coalition, led by the Honourable Tony Abbott MP, won government. Interviewed by the Australian Financial Review in December 2012, Mr Abbott had made some expectations clear in what the writer described as blunt warning to public public servants. Because what normally happens is that a government comes in, they've got all these policies, and they rely for the implementation on the public service. There's nothing wrong with that as such. But what I like to be able to say to the public service is, look, this is how we think it needs to be done. Rather than relying on them to tell us, I'd like to be in a position to tell them on day one. The executive government depends on the public service for its administration, but the more authoritatively the government of the of the day can speak to the public service, the more likely it is that the public service will administer your policy in a way which recognises its spirit and its letter. On that, ladies, what are your thoughts? Income compliance scheme, which is the actual name mm-hmm. of robo-debt, was yes. one of the first instances of wide use in a Western country of government by algorithm. Yeah. Were basically told by an algorithm, you owe money because this algorithm has had these inputs that say you owe this much money. Uh, but just the idea from Abbott, Tony Abbott, that the politicians are there to tell the public service what to do. Just that quote, what are your thoughts on that quote? Well, that's nonsense because the politicians don't tell public services what to do. The Commonwealth Parliament tells them what to do because we start having just the politicians. And by politicians in this case, Tony Abbott means the cabinet of Australia and the executive branch of Australia. He does not mean the democratically elected House of Representatives and the pseudo-democratically representative Senate. He doesn't mean those two bodies. He means he wants, he as Prime Minister of Australia wants to go do what I tell you. And he wants Uh to be able to say, Minister for Welfare, Scott Morrison, do as he tells you. That's what he actually means by that statement. He doesn't actually mean the parliament itself. We know that because RoboDebt did not have legal underpinning. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, as something we'll discuss uh we'll discuss shortly clancy before i jump in anything you want to say before well i think i think the main point of course that phoebe's already touched on is that yes the the parliament directs the public servants to implement policies and how government works but public servants also have a shared responsibility to advise the parliament. And unfortunately, the reverse wasn't true. So, you know, they were being directed to implement this policy. And a lot of public, a lot of the public servants were saying, hang on, this policy isn't actually fair and we don't think it's legal. But they were forced to do it anyway. Yeah. It was very much a top-down approach. And a lot of those public servants are now saying, well, we thought it was wrong to begin with and they weren't listened to. I kind of don't mind the idea of, I suppose, a minister or something that gives that is a bit more authoritative. But I suppose the problem is is that if you're going to override, the public service is also there to give you advice. That if you're yes. going to override that two-way feedback mechanism, 
then yeah, like there's, not, there's nothing wrong with the government implementing the policy and like giving clear and frank instructions on how things should be done. But there's also a thing called like operating within the law and making sure that you're, you know, not going to create more problems for yourself. Absolutely. And the big thing here to remember is that parliamentary democracy functions with the executive being able to do its job within the law. And yep. with that, parliament also has to be allowed to be able to function by being able to scrutinise the actions of ministers and government officials. No one is above the law. Be they elected officials in the House of Representatives or in the Senate, or be they those civil servants by those civil servants having their short and curlies hauled in front of a select committee. They are... are the two biggest ways, so you've got question time, which takes place, which is frankly a bit of a joke, but it's question time for you. And you then have the select committees, which are usually overrun by lunatic members of the One Nation Party. But they don't need to be like that. The way that it should be working is that the government does its job by running the department and directing the policy within the law that the parliament allows it to do. To my knowledge, but correct me if I'm wrong, Australia hasn't passed any Henry VIII Acts or Henry VIII Clauses in Acts of Parliament, which allow ministers to just do as they please. No, no. Though, though I think some ministers do push them. Oh, they do try. Yes. Oh, they do try, but it doesn't really go down too well. No. You've got to remember too, Damien, that, that ministers are voted in. They're not appointed by merit so you know they're they, selected they're, yes. yeah so so they're not you know they're basically they serve at the pleasure of the people without qualifications who are set into a position of authority to tell other people with way more qualifications than they are they've yes. got how <laughs> yeah, to yeah. run things so, yeah, yeah. you know, which is a bit like a monarchy, really. So, so, you know, this is the thing is that the public servants often have decades of experience and qualifications on, you know, how public policy works and what laws are in place and whether or not certain things can be implemented. The ministers are meant to take advice from them before they formulate any policy so that they know that the policy is actually lawful and can be implemented. In this case, they've obviously not done that. They've ignored the advice, in fact, yeah. actively ignored the advice. But this this next quote I wanted, wanted to highlight from the report. And in relation to welfare services, in January 2015, the newly appointed Minister for Social Services, Mr Morrison, described himself in an interview as planning to be a strong welfare cop on the beat because Australians were not going to cop people who were going to rort the social security system. So, thinking what we think of Scott Morrison now, how, how do we how do we see that that turn of phrase? It's it's a fairly horrendous phrase because what it's what it effectively says is that I'm declaring war on the poor. Effectively, that sent that that's that sentiment basically says. Yep. I'm declaring war on poor people in Australia. How dare poor people get a handout from the government, even if they're in employment? Quite said. I don't quite see it as that. I think he's allowing people to have welfare, but it's sort of like as soon as you step over the line, you know, then only what's given to you don't you try dare take. But, uh, it's, just, this it's, is... it's this persistent idea 
that somehow if you are on welfare, then you are rotting the system or you're a bludger, that you're not actually, or that you don't deserve it, that somehow that money is given to you which for is, no reason. Which is actually in the report as well, in this paragraph I'm highlighting, by casting recipients as a burden on the taxpayer by making onerous requirements of those who are claiming or have claimed benefit, by minimising the availability of assistance from the departmental staff, by clawing back benefits, whether justly or not. A very mean mindset, you know, that's so the thing. It's not necessarily a mean mindset. It's a populist mindset that hmm. basically says... You go to work every day. These scroungers don't go to work and you pay taxes to prop up their lifestyles of drinking and gambling, which is basically what the stereotype of the right-wing anti-welfare, anti-poor populist rhetoric that you hear in countries such as the United States, the United Kingdom, increasingly in Germany, increasingly in Italy, and unfortunately seeing it in quite flowery language here but the underlying sentiment here is people who claim benefits it should be made as difficult as possible for them to claim benefits so that they spend most of their time claiming benefits so that they are made to feel like they are doing something which is wrong that they're made to feel like they're doing something which is difficult and something that they shouldn't be doing because it's so challenging and these are people who in some cases have had their jobs taken away from them one day and they're trying to access the system the next day and the system is as upsetting to them as when they were sacked from their job the previous day. Yeah, I remember even back in the late 90s when I was applying for what was called then called Oz Study. Uh, applying for yeah, applying for payments is a bit of an onerous uh Phoebe's right, the system's set up to punish the poor. It's not it's not really set up there to help the, help the poor or people who have fallen onto hard circumstances, often through no fault of their own. And you know, it really isn't a fair system. I had I had a similar issue. Um I was on our study like you were Damien for many years while I was studying. I had one subject that I had to complete, which meant that I, I didn't qualify for hostility for that six months. I, I was having to apply for jobs, even though I had a job waiting for me when I graduated, that I couldn't start yet because I had to finish the one subject. The other onerous portion of this yeah. was the fortnightly yeah. requirement to uh, report was, your wages. Let's get, let's, let's get into it. We're still in the history. We're still in the build-up to RoboDebt. So this paragraph here from the Royal Commission, uh, in May 2015, as part of the 2015-16 budget, the government adopted a measure named Strengthening the Integrity of Welfare Payments. Jeez, that sounds uh, described as a package not draconian for, at all. Not no. draconian at all. Described as a package for enhancing fraud prevention and debt recovery and improving assessment processes in relation to the payment oh. of social security benefits, it was expected it was expected to save $1.7 billion over five years. Most of those savings were to come from the employment income matching measure, the initiative which began RoboDebt, which was proposed to recover overpayments resulting from incorrect declarations of income. Uh, another measure in the package titled Task Force Integrity involved the secondment of AFP officers and was designed to crack down on welfare fraud. I'm sorry, AFP were involved in this. They were indeed, yes. That's, Jeez, uh, Louise. Talk about criminalising the poor as well as, you know, bludgeoning the poor. Hmm. But I mean, in summary, you read that sentence out, you read that sentence out, you read that paragraph out before you carry on. It has not been written by somebody 
who wants this to be understood easily. I understand yes. it because I take an interest in these things. And I would write that to an instructor if I was if I was instructing a barrister. That's the kind of language I would use if I was instructing a barrister. Like it, fair enough. I wouldn't use that in everyday parlance. That's just nonsense. No, no. In summary, the employment income matching measure entailed a process of data matching and debt raising to be to be applied to some eight hundred and sixty-six thousand. 857 instances of possible overpayment for the financial years 2010-11, 2011-12, and 2012-13, identified through a comparison of ATO and DHS data. DHS would obtain information from the ATO as to what a benefit recipient's employers had returned as the income earned by the recipient in the relevant financial year, or PAYG data, compare it through an automated system with what had been declared to, to DHS by the recipient, and in the, in the event of a discrepancy, would require the recipient to go online to explain it. So we get to the term income averaging, which is a, what Clancy was about to talk about. So Clancy, did you want to discuss? Yeah, so that this whole idea that when you had an income from one source, whether it was from the government itself or from a paid employment position, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Say you'd had a job or you'd been paid in a diff- under a different system and then that stopped. So you lost that job or that work wasn't available to you anymore yep. and you were just getting unemployment benefits. Then they would take the income that you used to earn and add it to your unemployment benefits. If the money that you were earning previously was more than what they believed was... Or was calculate, calculated to be more than. Exactly. You would actually have to pay it back, even though that was money that you earned. So it brought in a situation where people had been maybe doing casual work or something like that on top of their payments, which under our system you are supposed to be allowed to do. Yes, yep. But it wasn't being declared in the, the time yeah. period that they decided was the one that had to be put into. So, you know, people were having to pay back those debts. So when I did it, fortunately, I never got a robo-debt requirement. But because I went from Ostudy, but I was also working uh, casually, and they were requiring me to apply for all these extra jobs, even though I had a job waiting for me, would breach me. So if I didn't put in to say that I had applied for a bunch of jobs, I wouldn't get paid that fortnight. So as an outsider, as an outsider, the way that I had this described to me, which was the best way that I had it described to me, was you have John Smith. John Smith is, say, 25 years old. He's working as a barista, and he does casual shifts there. Mm-hmm. And he reports his, his income his every income. two weeks. And then six months later, he gets a new, he gets a promotion. They take him on full time. And... He's no longer able to claim because he's over the income threshold. So he's, in the first half of the year, earned $5,200. But in the second half of the year, he's earned $50,000. So what RoboDebt then did is it then saw his whole income for the year and then income averaged it out so that he earned the $55,000 over the number of fortnight, over the 26 fortnights, which took him over the limit for the whole year, which then meant he got a debt, which then meant he got a robo-summons. Yes. So where in any given fortnight, the average fortnightly amount exceeded the income the recipient was entitled to receive before reduction of benefit, 
It will be taken that there had been an overpayment, a debt would be raised accordingly, and steps would be taken to recover it. So the DHS will get the ATO data and see that you earned something in a fortnight and then either average the higher amount over the course of the year or just take one fortnight's data and apply that to every fortnight and whammo. Or take the whole year if you, your circumstances changed and then average out your whole year's earnings even if you had weeks or fortnights or months yeah. where you were eligible. Correct. Absolutely nuts. Oh, it's, um, we'll get to that in a sec, but RoboDebt started off small. It only started off in, oh, I forget exactly where it started off, but they did a pilot program involving like a thousand people or something. And so one of the... I'm just My brain find... wants to say that was done in Darwin. According to the report, there were five. So the thing is, was that there was always some sort of income averaging uh, done, as Clancy and I described. Because when we were on on Oz study or welfare payments, you know, we had to. Uh, and after I finished uni, there was a period of time where I was on unemployment benefits, and I had to report, you know, work done or jobs jobs uh, applied for, all that kind of stuff. So there's always some sort of reporting system and a possible debt recovery system. So this kind of thing is, isn't new. There were five significant differences under RoboDebt, and the first and major was that the PAYGO data was regarded to be the primary source of earned income information, which could be acted on to raise debts, although unconfirmed by the employer or the recipient. Uh, second, in the past where past compliance officers had engaged with recipients, uh, where was it? Oh, yeah, the onus was placed on the recipient to contradict the report rather than the report to actually get its shit together in the first place. Uh, thirdly, where averaging had previously been used to arrive at a fortnightly income in limited circumstances, the PAYGO data averaged on a fortnightly basis for, was now applied automatically where alternative information was not provided and accepted. So if you worked a job for the first half of the year and then didn't have a job for the second half of the year, basically what you had in the first half of the year was automatically applied to the second half of the year. And there you go. Fourthly, critical to achieving the predicted savings, where previously compliance officers had been involved, it is now anticipated that in most instances, the entire process will be conducted online. The aim being to reduce and preferably obviate human involvement at the DHS end. So this wasn't just a crackdown on welfare recipients. This was just uh, this is also saving money in terms of not needing people, yeah, not needing people to actually run it. Uh, and the fifth and final difference, where data matching and consequent reviews had in the past been conducted on an annual basis, now recovery efforts will be directed over several years, going back some five years from the implementation of the program. So if you're unlucky in one year, that's one thing. But now they're going to check how unlucky you've been over the previous 2013, 2014 financial year. What this was, at some points, when it was actually implemented to begin with, there was an underlying width about it that has now become a bit more obvious that yes. it was designed to try to paint the Julia Gillard government as allowing welfare debts to go unreclaimed by going back in years to when Gillard was government gov when they had the Gillard governments and the Rudd governments uh -huh. because it was designed to go back in those er into the Labour years so that when the Liberal Party found debt they go look we're saving money the 
Labour Party are no good at running welfare. They which, allow which they allow scroungers and. Yeah, which was the so there was a I think Tony Abbott himself came up with this uh, saying that he did. Um, I think it was called the tax and the, instead of spend and tax, the la- labor word tax and spend. Waste your money and give it away to anyone that could get their hands on it, kind of nonsense. But the thing that yep. also we have to remember with this is that government minister after government minister stood at the dispatch box in the House of Representatives and defended the scheme. Alan Tudge in 2017 stood up and went, this is fine. It's going to continue. In 2017, Centrelink were told there were problems with robo-debt. And Alan Tudge stood at the dispatch box and said, the scheme will continue. The scheme is going to work. It will continue. Mm -hmm. Which is incredible. Uh, The last part I forgot to mention was that penalties came with a 10% recovery fee. Mm. Oh, they did. And if you said nothing, you were automatically defaulted. Yes, that was the thing. So the presumption of innocence as well. There was no presumption of innocence. It was that, you know, you were found, you were guilty of this, of this debt. It was up to you to go back to your employers or to your, you know, accountant um, or your accountant or whoever and, you know, get the data from them to go back to Centrelink or the, the, the department and say, you know, hey, you guys are wrong. But the problem is if you've left your employer on bad terms, if, you know, your accountant's dead. Yeah, your accountant's dead, or just you know you've moved addresses, or the onus was put entirely on the welfare recipient. And as the report said, there was there was a uh, I suppose a preference for not having DHS staff actually help out. Well, they were actively discouraged. That was that was part of the thing. The 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 staff that you know and the public servants were saying we were saying to our bosses this is wrong this is unfair and the problems in the scheme and they were being actively shut down and the other thing that was amazing well not amazing but and not incredible as in wow incredible as in this is incredible was that to contact the relevant government department or the relevant Centrelink department or the, just a relevant anybody was made onerously difficult. Yes. Yeah. It was intentionally made as difficult as possible. Yeah. Because you were assumed that you'd had mm-hmm. a debt issued against you and therefore you were as guilty as sin. Yeah. Nonsense. Absolutely madness. Well, well nonsense. But I, it's also I don't good. know if either of you have seen the movie Brazil. No. no. Terry Gilliam movie. No. no. So Adrian and I were watching it the other night and, and essentially it's about it, it would look like, you know, what happened in the Liberal government during RoboDebt, you know, people with piles of papers and files wandering around and denying people any sort of fair recompense. Yeah. <laughs> you but know. Yeah, so in, but, yeah, in 2017, Alan Tudge stood at the dispatch box and went to Centrelink and... The Australian tax office data matching is working. RoboDebt is working fine. It well, it's working. <laughs> yeah. But one part is true. Yeah, it's not for the people. Yeah. But here's the here's the amazing thing. Some recipients of RoboDebt infringement and enforcement notices were being asked to provide pay slips for work that they had carried out. In 2012, people in 2017 being asked to provide pay slips for work they had done in 2012. And this included the self-employed, 
This included casual and seasonal laborers. A physical paper payslip or an e-payslip is just not something you're given. Paid your cash or you're paid by your bank transfer and that's mm-hmm. it. And particularly um, most uh, employers now have uh, payslips behind a like a, a portal and when you leave you, when you leave your company, you're, you're blocked access to that portal to yeah. get the payslips information. So it's really, yeah. It's like really, I had, really. I left, just on the side, I left one employer once. And on the last week I was there, I was just printing off all of my documents that they had. So payslips, training records, the lot. And they said, what are you doing? I said, the day I walk out of here is the day I can no longer get this without writing to you and you view me back and forth. They said, but you're wasting the paper. I said, I don't care whether I'm wasting the paper here. I may need this if the government comes after me saying that I have owe them <laughs> yeah. money. And I think so what then- RoboDebt's going to do to a lot of people and to a lot of companies as well is that they're going to be a lot more fastidious with keeping copious amounts of records. And the capriciousness of having to do that in this day and age is just absurd. But but just for some historical context, data matching is nothing new in Australia. Data Data matching came around under the Bob Hawke government in 1990. Bob Hawke and co implemented the data matching stuff to begin with. But that's not anything wrong with data matching. No, and as I said, like the idea of... Yeah, it's when you feed it into a computer that's kind of (laughs) junk input, you're going to get a junk output. Well, and then told just, (laughs) if you don't have anything, just use this and apply it every step of the way. So the first part is that it was a rush proposal. There were people who... So here we go. Jason Ryman shared Ms. Collins's reservations and the view that they had not done enough work at that stage to put the measure forward, but he had been instructed to develop it nonetheless. He considered that he had not done the work necessary to bring together something that would have significant confidence in. Mr. Ryman gave evidence that ordinarily there would have been some level of testing that would have developed specifications for the process, including details of why and how customers would engage with an online process. But down here, uh, Mr. Britton similarly felt that the measure needed more work. He was worried about the pressure he felt was being applied by his manager, Mr. Withnell. The proposal was hugely complex. There was imperative to get the savings, to get the investment, to build the platform. He said, not only through this measure, but we will continue, we will come to the other ones. There was a lot of pressure, like a lot of pressure to get it, to get it through. We know boats. We know boats. This is alluding to the turning of the boat third party, and we mm, know how that system yep. works. <laughs> yes. So we know how data matching works. So we can t- we can tell if you're an illegal in this country by data matching, whenever yep. you touch the system anywhere. But the amazing thing about this is that there was an inability of anybody in any of the higher echelons of the Abbott government. By this time, Abbott was uh, not prime. I understand yeah. that. But it came from him, and he was still prime minister when red flags were being raised. Mm. He was still prime minister. He doesn't get off scot-free here because Scott Morrison took the hit and then lost the election. Yes. Tony Abbott is the reason this was there in the first place. And nobody in those periods of time when it was basically being screamed at them in 2017, as I said, when Alan Tudge stood up and said, it's working... Nobody was prepared to look at the scheme and go, why are people actually saying this to us? 
they weren't prepared to actually look at it and go, is this actually something which can be salvaged to work correctly? Is it fine anyway? And we need to explain why they're wrong. Or is it something that is actually maliciously being told it doesn't work? Yeah. And what you actually have is you actually had the worst case scenario for that. People were telling them it wasn't working and they were telling them it wasn't working for very good reasons. It was working and it wasn't working. So if it doesn't work properly, it's not working. Yes. yes. Yep. And people were ignoring people saying, look, this is not working. And going so fast to actually turn around and go, piss off. This is going to work. It is working. Go away. There was also stuff involving the, um, how can I say, the, the Department of Human Services and the Department of Social Services as well. It eventually got released to the wider public, uh, but then uh, there, were, uh, there was pushback. There was like people going, "No, this isn't uh, this isn't fair. This is this is this is BS." Uh, law firms and academics started to get involved as well, and so um, there were lawsuits uh, yeah, that had got. I think there were appeals made via the Minister of Appeals Tribunal, and one of the places this whole thing fell down was that apparently, according to DHS rules, if there is an adverse finding against a DHS uh, ruling, it's supposed to go back to the Department of Social uh, Social Services, and that didn't always happen, or there was a collusion between the two to ignore uh, what was being instructed by the AAT. But Malcolm Turnbull doesn't come out smelling like roses either. No. Because Malcolm Turnbull could have very easily terminated this program, and he didn't. I, I need to apologise for what I said earlier, because it wasn't Abbott that was in government when Tudge was standing up, it was Turnbull that was standing up. And I think that what people are failing to see here is that there were three Prime Ministers watched this happen under, and only two of them, and only two of them were called and gave evidence to the yeah, Royal Commission. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that... I am amazed that the, number, the third person didn't actually step up and go, look, I was involved in this as well. I'm surprised uh, well, they didn't say you will turn up here, mate. Uh, he was he was too busy in England with his um with his mate Bojo, like yeah, doing or helping it. Bojo resign from office. Uh, Rochelle Miller, and she testified that the department was meant to like go on the attack on any adverse media coverage as well, which I find absolutely. And these, and these are things that were just, frankly, should never have been allowed in this day and age to occur. These are the kind of things that you would expect from Victorian poor laws, for crying out loud. <laughs> yes. these, are not, these are not things in a modern, multicultural, multifaceted 21st century democracy. It just isn't like that. Especially not in a social democracy that Australia is meant to be, where we no. are meant to be caring for people who are less fortunate who can't necessarily work you have a social safety net for a reason exactly. and this set fire to it exactly indeed, right. indeed mr tudge personally involved himself in responding to media manifesting his acceptance of those ms miller suggestions of a strategy involving a strong defense and the story of a system that is doing what it's supposed to do Part of this and what they did say in the report too was that there was this perception that rorting was widespread and mm -hmm. that people were out to manipulate the system. And in reality what they found was that that was minuscule. It was a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people that were doing that. Yeah. And 
you know, this sort of approach essentially damned everybody. Yep, but I think the person who lost the most was Scott Morrison. Him being firstly the Minister for Social Services and then, yeah, eventually the Prime Minister. No. no. This was not a mistake. And for anyone to say that it was a mistake fundamentally misunderstands that this was intentional. This was thought out, this was planned out, and this was implemented under three prime ministers. Indeed. Three liberal prime ministers uh-huh. implemented this. Yep. And not a single one of them, when they came into office, or whilst they were in office, went, what on earth is this? Well, because maybe the need for budget savings was greater than the... But here's the yeah. irony of that statement. Yes. Every single person who has been affected by robo-debt, whether correctly or incorrectly, will have to be compensated in some way. Well, that brings me to the class action. There was actually a class action brought against brought against the government. And in that, the involved reimbursement of $746 million to some 381,000 affected individuals and writing off debts amounting in total to $1.751 billion. So basically, the money they tried to recover, one that they paid back, and then they ended up, they zeroed out the debt. So they cancelled that out. But then there's another part of the report where the Department of Human Services had to go to a labor hire firm to all of a sudden hire these people on a temporary basis to deal with the flood of complaints that were coming in from RoboDebt as well. So it wasn't just the it wasn't just the uh, the class action. It wasn't just the zeroing debt. It was also having to pay people. So this whole idea of using computers to calculate mm. debts got <laughs> nullified by having to rush in a whole lot of uh, temporary employments em- employees to do what the computers so so in the end the, the the scheme that was meant to recover all the this money for the government actually cost them way more oh, it did and the thing the thing is the though point. there will be <clears throat> there there is the possibility as well of the individual ministers having their professional immunity removed from them, their privilege as a member of parliament and as a member of the cabinet actually removed from them from this for this scheme because of the number of whistleblowers that were going, what are you doing? This is unlawful. What are you doing? This is unlawful. And then just patently ignoring them. This was the first instance of an algocracy and an algocracy was shown to fail spectacularly. Yep. Uh, just reading here, meanwhile, the scheme trundled on. Uh, one that was the online component was an abject failure with the result that a large number of employees had to be drafted on short-term contracts or by way of labour hire into the department, into DHS to cope with the inquiries. And so, yeah, that just yeah, blew up, blew up there. But in, in light of that, so the report came out this week, and if you want to read the whole 1,052 pages, you're more than welcome to, but it is an abject failure. And I think it's part of the reason why the Liberal the liberal Party brand is on the nose at the moment, like not just federally, but in every every state that I think the stink has come across. And I think that's a very important thing to remember. In this whole sorry situation, that is a very important thing to remember. Since the report has come out, there have been uh, calls for Scott Morrison to basically 
get the F out of Parliament. So the member for Cook should yes. no longer be the member for Cook. Yes. And so in, now this part of the this part of the episode, we'll go over um, our thoughts of Scott Morrison and just some of the things he's done, he did in his time as Prime Minister, as well as afterwards. So one of the things about Scott Morrison was that he, when he was Prime Minister, he had this stick that he was like a daggy, a daggy dad. So in, in the way that Bojo kind of came off as like a buffoon, like a, lo- a lovable buffoon, ScoMo yeah. had this thing where, you know, he would, like a middle-aged dad, he's just trying his best. He's like affable and friendly and sometimes- The has kind of dad it. that you go around and see and he gives you a bit of advice and you bugger off and leave him to the other- Yeah, yeah, and he was a bit of an ocker. He did the whole ocker, ocker thing Mm -hmm. Uh, on his Twitter account because he was. uh, So where was this? This is back in 2020 when he was about to meet Narendra Modi, who was the Prime Minister of India. Scomo decided to make Scomoses instead of Samoses. A pity my meeting with Narendra Modi this week is by video link. They're vegetarian. I would have liked to share them with him. Cringe. Cringe. It's that, that is. But it's, it's, it's as cringe as Rishi Sunak and Anthony Albanese exchanging cricket memes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. yes, that was pretty cringe. <laughs> that was. But I did like Rishi Sunak's line. I, sh- I should have brought the sandpaper. What is Scott Morrison doing in quarantine? So he's, you know, getting he's getting a COVID test here and he's on his exercise bike in his, in his rugby top there and it's scoma working in the garden with the is that a cigarette or is that like a lollipop or something here yeah. on on the tools he's holding a book he's, no, he's holding a lego oh here we go the uh scomo selfie oh dear that's like yep it's a bit too cringe really but look this is politicians they have a brand and they stick to that brand it's sort of like how donald trump is the anti-politician politician it's a bit like how Pauline Hansen is the anti-person politician that she's sticking to that. Oh, there's, there's, there's that, there's that. But one of, I think one of the biggest uh, mistakes that ScoMo made early on in his uh, prime ministership was the 2019 bushfires. Oh, yeah. And, he's and I'm, I'm, I'm about to play, I'm about to play a viral, a clip that went viral of a firefighter in the New South Wales town of Nelligan uh, who has some choice words for the Prime Minister? You from the media, tell the Prime Minister to go and get from Nelligan. We really enjoy doing this head. Thank you very much. Fair enough. I've lost seven houses already in Nelligan. I'm not going to lose any more, you head. Some very very choice words for the uh, for the prime minister, because apparently uh, one of Scomo's defences was that firefighters really love firefighting. Did you not know that? Just like nurses really like sick people. Yeah, exactly. Uh, IT people really love broken computers. Actually, we do. Social workers really <laughs> love taking children from their parents. Yeah, that's. But yeah, that was um, and I think his his defenses were that he had he promised his kids would take a holiday. He would, you know, he was feeling burnt out and exhausted and and, and stuff like that. He was but, feeling burnt out and exhausted. The Scomo was, yes, yeah, Scomo. Like he yeah. promised the kids that they he would get away from the job for for a couple of weeks, and it just so happened in those couple of weeks that um, yeah, that's uh, 
Skomo. Um, after after Skomo left office, so in uh, so this was it this year or was it last year? I forget. He it's left been office a... in 2020... 2022, yeah. he left office. It was like, yeah, no, it's just a, it's all, all a bit of a blur. So after, so he, so during the 20, 2022 election, he was retained as the member for Cook. But he was. He, he, had, he, a, he had quite a big majority in Cook. He won the seat by two to one on the, on yeah. the um, two-party preferred. Yep. However, uh, he no longer led the party that had the lower house majority. So that gave him a lot of free time to uh, go and see some mates. Uh, one of those mates was the infamous Margaret Court. Do you believe if you lose an election that God still loves you and has a plan for you? I do. Because I still believe in miracles. God's kingdom will come. It is in his hands. We trust in him. We don't trust in governments. We don't trust in the United Nations, thank goodness. We don't trust in all of these things, fine as they might be and and as important as the role that they play. Believe me, I've worked in it and they are important. But as someone who's been in it, if you are putting your faith in those things like I put my faith in the Lord, you are making a mistake. That's a very wow. interesting... Wow, he's uh, made a mistake putting his faith in the Lord. <laughs> what, what Lord? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The yeah, House exactly. of Lords? Well, possibly. That's, uh, uh, that, 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 that was more for Abbott to put his faith in the House, House of Lords. But mm. yeah, um, so yeah, so not long after he lost the prime ministership, uh, he went over to Perth because Margaret Court uh, built a new church and he was there to commemorate the opening of Margaret Court's new new church building, I should say. She's a wonderful human being, Margaret Court is. She's just wonderful. So I thought it was actually interesting that Scott Morrison actually went over and did that because of all the controversy surrounding Margaret Court and her fairly strident... Uh, Social <laughs> views. Social views, yes. That's a good way, good way of putting it. But uh, he's made to avoid me going on another one of my patented rants. His speeches in Parliament have become slightly deranged. What do you mean? Slightly deranged. So the member for Cook has made some speeches in Parliament. Mm -hmm. So when it was announced certain things that he had done, like the report into his multi-ministries, and he gave that speech in Parliament where he was Basically, just shouting, "I did nothing wrong." How dare no, you was say? It, I did what, was wrong. it? Was it the? Was it in Parliament or was it the press conference? No, that was a press in Parliament. Conference. He was standing in Parliament. There was a press conference as well, but he was standing in Parliament as well. Okay, all right. Let me see if I'm fine. Can you find the footage of that, or I can uh, let me see if I can find? Because I know there was a uh, actually, yeah. Well, actually, we'll talk about the multi multiple ministries. Is one of the things that came out after. Uh, Scott Morrison left office was that because it was when he got censured. Yes, he got he got censured. So basically, it, it had come out. Now, forget how it came out. I think someone had let slip. I think it might have been Barnaby Joyce who had accidentally let slip that uh, during so at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, and then uh, basically up until he was prime minister, Scott Morrison had secretly held the portfolios of I think Treasury. Uh, I think Treasury, Immigration, um, what was it? Mining and Resources. Uh, he held a lot. 
Yeah, there was about. And the five. only one that he really owned up to was health, I think, wasn't it? So that was no, the first one he took over. Uh, mining, mining, because he actually made a a decision in mining to um ah uh, home affairs. That's right. So treasury and home affairs, because he actually made a decision to overturn a uh, an exploratory license that was politically inconvenient. It, it, it had come out, it was it was let slip that he had held the secret ministries, including Treasury, which, which was held by his apparent good mate, Josh Frydenberg. <laughs> Josh Frydenberg didn't know that SCOMO is secretly held. But it brought the Governor General into uh, disrepute as well because SCOMO basically... Because he signed up on it. Yeah, well, but SCOMO basically went to the Governor General and said, look, you know, can you swear me in as a minister for this? And the governor general went ahead and did that, but he didn't keep any official records and he didn't publish mm. any official records saying that, hey, you know, you've now got a new, uh, you've now got a new minister for, uh, you've got a new treasury, you've got a new minister for home affairs, all that kind of stuff. When you have had more in government, then you may wish to cast the first stone in this place. This was an abuse of power and a trashing of our democracy. Parliament delivering his legacy, the first Prime Minister ever to be censured in the House of Representatives, including by one of his own. I do not accept any of the explanations put forward by the former Prime Minister for his actions. One explanation, that while he had been secretly sworn in to administer five departments... I was not sworn to hold the office of any of those ministerial portfolios. And this about the secrecy. Had I been asked about these matters at the time, at the men numerous press conferences I held, I would have responded truthfully about the arrangements. Congratulated by a long line of colleagues. I thought this morning we would see some contrition. And we got arrogance. And we got denial. Opposition leader Peter Dutton didn't defend Scott Morrison today. Few did. But he did find some comfort from another former Prime Minister... Tony Abbott. Unveiling his official portrait, painting a picture of solidarity among former PMs. Between us, there should always be a bond of respect. I think I think Albanese put it right. Instead of uh, there was no there was no contrition at all. He didn't he didn't think he'd done anything wrong. No, no, exactly. And uh, so you got that, and I've got this. So that he held a press conference, so he was censured. Um, and censured basically means what? How, how would you explain censure? So censure, censure is where you get you were a very very naughty boy, and we are saying you were a very very naughty boy. You're basically reprimanded, reprimanded by, reprimanded. by a nice slap on the back of the hand. Yes. But these things do come with more symbolic than actual inflict. Well, there's no consequences from it. No, no, but there is a lot of political consequence to it because basically yep. what they said was that we know that what you did was a pile of crap, mate. Don't do it again. Well, hopefully he won't be any chance to, but this is this is his defence uh, in, in a press conference. And they say thank you that my business is still there today and that my employees still have a job and that now there are better times and they're doing better. Sure, it's tough still, but they know what the alternative could have been. So I'm very proud of what Australia was able to achieve over that period. I'm very proud of Australians. And I'm proud of all of those who did everything they possibly could, whether they be health workers on the front line or those public officials who beavered away in, in the back offices supporting governments at state and federal level.
to help us all make the best decisions we possibly could at a time of extreme strain and unprecedented levels of challenge that you have not seen in this country since wartime. Over that period, we took decisions. I did as a Prime Minister, we did as cabinets at federal and state level that some of us would never have dreamed that we would ever have to make. And I remember making that comment on numerous occasions. The situation was very real. It was very serious. Events changed hourly, if not even more frequently than that. So Screamo basically goes on to say, look, you know, unprecedented times call for unprecedented measures. So I did what I had to to keep the country going. A very ScoMo you, thing to say. You didn't have to swallow up every government department. No, no, you didn't. So, but, Clancy, you are a healthcare mm -hmm. worker. Mm -hmm. How did the words of ScoMo resonate with you as a healthcare worker? That's complete bullshit. <laughs> so, the, the thing is that there's, there's I don't think people realise how much planning had already occurred in health particularly, but also in wider, in wider government and infrastructure in preparation for such a thing happening, right? And this is, this is part of the thing that really pisses me off about how they approached it because when I was in public health many years ago, we had a pandemic preparedness plan that was already underway. This is back in 2007, 2006, right? So, you know, everybody who worked in health and in, in public health particularly knew about this ongoing plan. People were getting trained. There was, you know, all sorts of preparedness work going on behind the scenes and stockpiling equipment and PPE and working on processes for how such you know, an event, if it happened, when it happened, which was, you know, the assumption that we would eventually get something like COVID, um, how it would be managed and who would be in charge of what things and what resources we had available. All of that stuff had been done. The problem was that uh, not long after I moved to Tassie and I left public health, the Liberal government, when it came in, said, oh, we don't need that anymore. <laughs> that, you know, that's not necessary. We don't need to upkeep that. And I basically just disbanded the whole thing and put it on the back burner. Mm -hmm. So all the work had been done in preparation and then it was just basically pulled, pulled ignored. Out. So when inevitably we did get a pandemic... Because um, one was bound to happen eventually... It was all, yeah, it was always bound to happen. So when, when it did actually happen, everything was out of date, you know, um, and all of those sorts of resources had been disbanded, the networks had been disbanded, yep. you know, and they had to scramble. So, you know, he, he basically disenfranchised all of these agencies that had you know already prepared for this stuff and dismissed those efforts and then was surprised that you know things didn't quite work the way they should have worked yeah. Yeah. what a surprise 
yeah, yeah. But and and that was the thing that pissed me off. I didn't realize because I'd I'd moved to Tassie that um that had happened until they started. And I'm like, well, things will just slot into place. That we've already got plans for all this, and it didn't. And I was like, what's going on? And then I realized what had happened. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of um righteous anger and disgruntlement, I'd say. Um on the part of a lot of healthcare workers who knew that this work had been done, but it just hadn't been continued and it so hadn't it was all, been. All, it was all for nothing, basically. It was all for nothing. And the thing is, yeah. if we'd have had it, we could have managed things a lot better with a lot less grief um, in the end. Yeah. But, you know, and it cost a lot of money. Like when, when I think back on it, it's like all this money had gone into this and then it was just abandoned and all that money was wasted and then we had to spend a shitload more money trying to scrabble back what Cash had up. already previously been achieved, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things about ScoMo was that, and I think Albanese had said it pretty well in that clip uh, Phoebe got me to play, was that, you know, there's not an ounce of contrition. And one of the things, I think we made this quip uh, before uh, at the start, was that ScoMo was Scotty from marketing. Absolutely. And part of that was because before he got into politics, he was actually the head of Tourism Australia or the head of marketing for Tourism Australia. So obviously he did have a marketing background. He was one of the few Australian politicians that actually went and had a job before he became a politician. Yes. Well, um, had a job in something other than politics. Well, precisely, yeah. yes. Yeah. Or law. However, however, the other thing about Scotty was that uh, even when he clearly did something unethical, uh, you know, when he deliberately hid stuff, um, that kind of stuff, you know, he was very slippery with his. Uh, he was slippery with the truth. I think is probably the only way you can really say it. And on he was a great weasel. Yes, and on screen I've got here, Scott Morrison claims he hadn't been to Hillsong in 15 years, despite footage showing him praying with Brian Houston in 2019 at the church's conference. Is he part – am I going to find him in the Pat Masiti files? You could, you could well do. You could well do. But, uh, but I think one of the reasons why ScoMo came out and said, oh, I haven't been to Hillsong Church in 15 years was because this was just after Brian Houston was uh, arrested for or he, he was found to have um, withheld child sex offences from New South Wales police. So I think in yep. order to distance himself for Scott Morrison to distance himself from uh, Brian Houston, he said, oh, I've been to Hillsong in 15 years, whereas mm. the video footage says something different. Yeah, it was a big, big surprise, obviously, to a lot of Australia. And uh, I love when we finally had the opportunity to give a good speech. It's too late night for us pastors to get up early in the morning. But, uh, and of course, one of the first things you said were along the lines of, I believe in miracles. So that was uh, Scotty and Brian Houston on stage. And apparently, Brian Houston wanted to go to the White House to meet Donald Trump. Oh, there, yes, there was, I remember reading that. There was, there was that as well. Um, I, don't, I don't know what happened there, but that was um, – but, yeah, Scotty came out. So Brian Houston got himself, I think, arrested or, you know, charged or something, and Scotty came and said, I've been to his church 15 years, <laughs> where it's kind of like plain as daylight that, you know, he was 
he was he was there. Uh, one of the other slimy things that Scott Morrison did was on election day last year. I don't know if you ladies remember this, but there was oh, a yes. Yes, yes, there yes. was a, a basically a, a suspected illegal entry vessel uh, that that had apparently come from Sri Lanka, and Scott Morrison was trying to pressure the. Yeah, bearing in mind, sovereign. bearing in mind, Sri Lanka was falling apart at this time. Uh, minor detail, minor detail, folks. Minor detail um, that they had overthrown the president and people were running around as mad as Norris in the presidential palace and stuff. Yeah, okay, that's a mi- just minor. Yeah, that, that's over there. Mi- minor details, but yeah, um, apparently the Oper- Operation Sovereign Borders had found the SIEV, and in order to try sway the election. So this was like at midday on election day and ScoMo apparently pressured the department to put out an announcement that they had found an SIEV, I suppose, in order to bolster the image that the Liberals were strong strong on borders. Yeah. And so after internal wrangling, the statement was published on its website at 1.09pm that day. Uh, and then Morrison, okay, Morrison Scott Morrison came out on election day. I've been here to stop this boat. Really, but in mate? order for me to be but in order for me to be there to stop those that may come from here, you need to vote liberal and national today. Oh, and yes, the text message. There was a text message that came out. Breaking. Australian border force has intercepted an illegal boat trying to reach Australia. Keep our border secure by voting liberal today. Mm. That was on election day. <laughs> I saw that and I went, "Oh, that's a bit. That's a like no way." I, I wasn't voting liberal anyway, but <laughs> there was, even after that, there was no way I was voting. What's that? You were you were voting for shooters, farmers, and fishers, were you? Correct. Voting? Yes, correct. I was voting for um. And and did you put number two down as Liberal Democrat, and did you put number three down as you know Centre Alliance? Possibly, possibly. I might have put Nick Centrefine up the top. I may have put a. He yeah. was, did you see Centre Alliance for you? Didn't realise. No, no. I may I may have voted for the help eliminate uh, help eliminate marijuana prohibition. Hemp. I may or may not have voted. Yes, I may, or may not may, may or may not have voted for him. But this is. Did you once vote for the sports party? I should have voted. In maybe, but this is another slimy thing that Scott Morrison, the Scotty, did that just kind of helped trash his own. Like at this point in the election cycle, I think Phoebe was saying before before we started recording was that um, you thought there was no way Scott Morrison would have won the election, and I was of the opinion that if he did, it would have been by by B's dick. I don't think he was ever in with a chance, quite frankly. Okay. I think that he was in the same position that Paul Keating was in in 1996. Which is? People were fed up. Yeah. And they wanted something different. Absolutely. As they'd had however many years of the Hawke-Keating government. Mm Mm-hmm. Until 1996, I can't remember. Was it 1984 they'd come into power, or was it slightly earlier than that? But either way, Labour had been in power for an awfully long time. Yep, yep. And it was the same in 2007 when 
It was the end of the member for Bennelong. John Howard. John Howard. And then people were just fed up with the, frankly, revolving door, unnecessary, nonsensical, Abbott, Rudd, Gillard. Gillard, Rudd. Abbott, Turnbull, going Turnbull Morrison, and they people just wanted to say go away to that lot and yep. start afresh. And I think that's what the Australian people have actually done with this fairly resounding Labour Thumping. majority that's yeah. there. Yep. Now, one other talking point that I did have was how, how many of you ladies know of the Australian Future Leaders Foundation? I knew about it about about 20 minutes before we went on air. Oh, okay. Um, Did did you know that it received $18 million in federal funding? Yeah, that's I knew that. I know that now. I didn't know just then. Did did you know that the Prime Minister's office would own own the project of the Australian Future Leaders Foundation? Mm -hmm. Own? Own? What the hell does that mean? Own. I don't know. This is own? but this this is what also came out during the ministerial uh, the ministerial uh, over- overload was that there was also a charity called the Australian Future Leaders Foundation. Oh, here we go. As a charity in 2021, uh, official launch held at Admiralty House in May 2021. Uh has not started any project, but will receive $3.6 million in federal funding. Well, this is back in 2021, but yes, um, it was, yeah, it was just one of those uh, things that made both the prime minister and the uh, governor general look bad. The terms and conditions of the funding agreement between the department of the prime minister and cabinet and the Australian future leaders foundation have not yet been settled despite there being millions of... Uh... So on one hand, Skomo and his crew are chasing, you know, working-class people for, you know, $2,000. But then on the other hand, he's giving his rich mates $18 million to do nothing, essentially. <laughs> and that may be why the Liberal Party's on the nose, is because they haven't got rid of the... Like, if you had a big pile of shit that was causing a stink... And you had friends over. Would you like, like, get rid of the pile of shit causing the stink, or would you just tell your friends, "No, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Everything is fine here." What's that smell? Oh, that's um, that's the farm <laughs> next door. The mm-hmm. farm next door. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, no, 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 no. no. You see, next door, they, they got problems with their their um, bathroom. No, it, it, it was, it was a, it was a previous tenant. It was something the previous tenants left behind. Blame it on the neighbors. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but you see those storms we had yesterday. Though they've caused us some issues, we, we apologise for that. But it's not yeah, it's, exactly. It's not that. It's not that steaming, flea-ridden, <laughs> hot mess in the corner. No, no, not, not at all, not at all. Um, and one, probably one last talking point uh, was that after Scott Morrison lost the prime ministership, he was appointed to the board for the Centre for a New American Security. Orcus. Whatever the hell that the means. World of good. Orcus did him the world of good in that game. I know. Assuming. But it's amazing, really, that he has <laughs> the one who 
signed Orcus. Yep. And oh yeah, because we didn't talk about how he pissed off the French. That's all. That, that's that's all. This that's is where all. I'm going, and how he yes. managed to really piss the French off, because he managed to do one thing that no other politician could have done. Oh, lordy! He yeah. made himself hated on both sides <laughs> of the chamber with that decision. That's it. It takes a special kind of character to be hated not only by the opposition but by your own party for a decision that you have made. Sure. Because, and then the lies about it as well. I think let's just quickly oh. talk about that because he. You know, I think we mentioned in our last episode that he was reported as saying, look, I didn't lie to him. I just didn't tell. Just didn't tell him. Yeah. I just didn't. I just didn't. I just was never asked the question, I think. Was but but this, goes to, this goes to the view that Scott Morrison is just slimy and greasy and weaselly. Well, it's the same excuse he just used for not telling people about the fact that he was the portfolio holder for the other ones. He said, if they'd asked me, I would have told them. But they never asked me. But they never asked me. <laughs> so, Phoebe, you were saying, you were saying, sorry, I cut you off. It was amazing how he managed to become uh, somebody that was hated on both sides of the aisle. And that's really quite impressive as a thing to do. In... Yep. Because he's unleashed the wrath of Paul Keating, mm. which is amazing. But Paul Keating's unleashed his wrath against the wrong person. He shouldn't really be unleashing it against the poor fool guy who can't, you know, really do much against it because he's lumbered he with a contract really that was signed by this bloke. He really should be laying into Scott Morrison as much as he's laying into Anthony Albanese. It's just one of those things where you go, what on earth is going on here? Yeah. And it's just one of those moments where you sit there and you just go... You have done something that is clearly not in the best interests of your country. But yep. it may be in your best interests yes. yes. to do That's, this. Uh, what what one last talking point? Uh well, there uh, we, we go. But yeah, um Scott Morrison and religion. Now oh dear. Scott Scott Morrison is one of the probably the only Pentecostal prime minister to uh, that, that we've had. We've we've typically had either Anglicans, uh, Presbyterians, or Catholics. I think Abbott was actually was Abbott the first Catholic. I don't know. I forget. But well, Turnbull was definitely Catholic, uh, and then we have had at least one atheist. That was yes. Julia. We have we've had we have had one atheist. Yes, um, but Scomo was the first Pentecostal prime minister. And yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's just interesting that you know I, I think he used his uh, Christian veneer as a yeah. way of deflecting criticism. You know, I'm I'm an upstanding Christian person. I'm doing the best. I'm I'm walking by faith. I'm trusting God. The first him, Catholic you know? Prime Minister was James Scullin in 1929. Uh, okay, all right, fair enough. And Malcolm Turnbull was a Presbyterian. Ah. Robert Menzies was a Presbyterian as well. Oh, there we go. That's uh, the the re the religious history of Australia's prime ministers. I think. But Pentecostal Scomo was the first one, and hopefully the last. Because if this is if this is the best example of a Pentecostal prime minister, I, I'd hate I'd hate to see the worst. Yeah, that's pretty sad. Why do you say that, Phoebe? Oh, Clance. 
Well, you know, if that's the best example. Yep. But look, I, I think this is uh, what ScoMo did to. Uh, this is what ScoMo has done to his reputation. Hey, this isn't a. Bowling, bowling the uh, bowling the uh, unprepared and uh, defenseless over. Mm. Well, there's not much more that can be said about that. No. So, the, for all our listeners, uh, I just played a uh, a video of Scott Morrison uh, during last year's election campaign, where he was in Tasmania uh, playing a game of soccer against uh, a bunch of like eight year old kids or something, and he landed on top of one. Yep. And so that's probably probably a fitting metaphor for um. Is that what he, Scott Morrison? Tackling the youth problem before it becomes a problem. <laughs> he was just, I think he was taken out of the game at the right time. Indeed. Yeah. But uh, any final thoughts on Robodet or Scott Morrison before we before we wrap up this uh, special episode? We haven't we haven't seen the last of the long tail of Robodet, and we will be probably having to speak about it again. In about a year's time, I reckon. Why, why do you say that? Why do you say that? Because I disagree. But I think there's yeah. going to be some more fallout from it. There I will mean, be more there... fallout from it, yeah. and there will be personal lawsuits against the ministers involved. And I think that on a state level now, there will be mm-hmm. state inquiries into it as to whether there were state institutions that were also relying on this data that yeah. may have contributed towards debt being raised against individuals who were receiving state benefits as opposed to just federal benefits. Okay. Yeah. Clancy. Oh, look, I agree with Fabi that and then I think there's going to be some personal consequences for uh, a lot of those ministers and um, public servants who are, have been implicated in the illegalities of the scheme mm-hmm. and yep. you know operated in the full knowledge that what they were doing wasn't legal and still persisted in doing it. So and that will I'm that will include um, Scomo and I it will include I, Malcolm Turnbull and, and it will Malcolm probably Turnbull. include Tony Abbott as well. Tony the thing is, though, Abbott, Abbott has to be included because he's the guy who set the thing up. Yeah. So either he is included in it or the person who gave him the legal advice that said it was perfectly legal is included. Yeah. Okay, because Abbott is only mentioned like once or like, you know, once or twice in the whole commission. Oh, I understand uh, I, that. I, I, but I, I find that he doesn't easy, like, get for... to run away from it. He doesn't get to run away from this. Just as much as Malcolm Turnbull doesn't get to run away from this either. Just because Scott Morrison was the fall guy and was the guy yep. who it came crumbling down on his head, it doesn't mean that the previous two people get to run away with it. We're going to run away from it. Well, but that, that's that... the thing. There's an element of collusion in all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Particularly, but, but... As, particularly as Scott Morrison was the minister in the Abbott government who set this up. Exactly right. That's And that's what I was trying to get to. So he was the one that ended up with Abbott and then persisted with it as yeah. prime minister mm-hmm. and then defended it. Um, so, there, yeah, there's going to be consequences. 
there has to be consequences. If there aren't consequences, I will be severely disappointed. But I'll be very surprised if there aren't consequences. I'll be very surprised as well. I mean, there's already been calls for, for um, Morrison to resign from government entirely. And, yep. and that, that was that was where I was leading to was that um, the, the big question I have is how represented in the federal parliament are the people of Cook with their by their member? They knew he's flying around to churches. He's part of like you know Center for a New American Security. He's you know doing all his gallivanting around. Mm. They knew this was a possibility. You cannot be this oblivious oblivious to the fact that a former prime minister is not going to be sat there diligently in his office in Canberra and in his office in his constituency reading your letters. No. You can't honestly expect a former prime minister to be the kind of person you expect to do that. And the people of Cook knew that full well. And here's the thing. The people of Cook knew full well they weren't going to get representation of the kind of, say, the member for Kuyong now gets. But the member for Kuyong was the treasurer, who's no longer the member for Kuyong. So the member for Kuyong has now gone where the dodo. And Joshua Freiberg is no longer a, a member of the Australian House of Representatives, so he doesn't actually give that kind of representation that he would have been giving to the people of Kuyong as a treasurer. And now they have just a backbench independent member who is giving everything that they need in relation to this. So there's not much more that can be said. They knew what they were getting. They were either getting a prime minister or a former prime minister, and that ain't going to give you the greatest level of representation in Parliament. Indeed. And on that note, and on that note, I think we should all do what we do the best, and we should all save the Governor General. Well, nothing's going to save the King because he's dead already. And no one in Scotland likes the King, so. Not my King! Not my King! Hashtag not my king. Not my king. In history's page, let every state advance Australia fair. In joyful strains, then let us sing advance Australia fair.